scripture reading today is taken from God's and Moses' conversation in Exodus 3 and 4. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you worship, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into his staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside of his cloak, and when he took, out, took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your Savior, your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow to speech, I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouth? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I? The Lord, the Lord, now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. This is God's word. Uh, you may be seated. Keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 3 and 4. And while you're doing that, let me remind you of uh, a great event that is going to take place this next Sunday night. Uh, on April 15th, which, as you know, is uh, tax day, the IRS this year has said we're going to move it to Tuesday the 17th in order for you to attend the uh, reception for Herb and Joy Smith. That's going to be at 5 o'clock over in the Fellowship Hall next Sunday night. We're not going to have small groups. We want to fill that, that fellowship hall with a lot of people, especially those that have been blessed by Herb and Joy. Uh, I, I don't say this about a lot of couples, but I say it about Herb and Joy. 
they live their life in every aspect the right way. And they are people who, who not only have been a blessing to us, but they are also a, a couple, many years of service, they are a couple very much deserving of our honoring and blessing of them. And as a church family, we're going to have a chance to do that. Uh, we, we're going to have a, a great time together. The food's going to be provided. There's going to be some things that the elders and others are going to say about Herb and Joy, but it's going to be a day to, to recognize this, this couple that has served a model for so many of us, not just in ministry, but for those that have grown up in this church for years and years and years and have, have been ministered to and have developed friendships with Herb and Joy, have been mentored by them. It'll be their day for us to say to them, thank you. And uh, with that in mind, we're going to ask God to bless us as we get into Exodus chapter 3 and we think about the sufficiency of God. Father, in the ways that you make yourself known to us, we praise you. Because with, without, with, without your presence and, and all of the ways that you reveal yourself to us, we would be lost in all the universe. But you have revealed yourself in your word and in your presence and perfectly in the person of Christ. And you have given us your spirit. And for all of these things, we are grateful. And as we think about this conversation between you and Moses so many thousands of years ago, we're asking, Father, in the name of Jesus, in his name, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we not only learn, but that we're transformed and radically revolutionized into people whose faith solely placed in your presence. And this we pray in the name of Jesus and all the church said. There is a, there's a really wonderful book, uh, probably, probably really a spiritual classic for those in my generation. So, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, it was written by J.I. Packer. Uh, the name of the book is Knowing God. And at the, the end of the book, in the very last chapter, he brings up a fellow by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who, as you know, is a great uh, preacher a couple of hundred years ago in New England, is a name that's associated with uh, the, the sermon entitled Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, which led to uh, uh, this great revival on the East Coast. In truth, he preached the sermon a couple of times before it actually uh, kicked off into revival. But Packer, who has read all of, of Edward's sermons, wrote this at the end of this book, Knowing God. He says this, It was said of Jonathan Edwards that all of his doctrine was application, and all of his application doctrine. Doctrine and application, application and doctrine go hand in hand. And what uh, Edwards was trying to do, and what it is that Packer's trying to describe, is that everything that you know and believe, those two go together. You may know something, but if you don't believe it to be true, then it's not going to have any kind of an impact on your life. What you know and what you believe to be true about God will impact every aspect of your life. What you know and believe to be true about God will impact every aspect of your life. Think about the areas of, of fear in your life and what the presence of God and the promises of God say to you about how you handle that fearful situation or those areas of insecurity. Or maybe it's guilt 
Or maybe it's your relationships. The Bible and God have revealed to us a lot of things that help us not only maintain, but help our relationships to flourish as human beings in this fallen world. Let me give you an example of one of the ways that, that a psalm helps you with this. In Psalm 46, there are some fellas, the sons of Korah, who are going through a pretty bad day. And it's, it's a day that feels like to them, beginning in verse 2, that the earth is giving way, the mountains are, are falling into the heart of the sea, the sea itself is kind of roaring and surging and foaming, and the mountains are quaking because of what's happening in the sea. What, what's going on in their life, we don't really know, but it doesn't sound like a, a, an average day. Sounds like the kind of day in which there's some special kind of anxiety, special kind of stress, or fear has come into their life, and it feels like this event, this episode in their life, is going to sweep their legs right out from under them. But this is where then the psalm changes. What we know and believe about God to be true is important. So we go to the very beginning of the psalm, and it says that God is our refuge and strength. We think about what it means for God to be a refuge. We think about the word strong, strength, what it means for God to be strong as God is strong in the world. It says he's an ever-present. What does it mean to be ever-present? We meditate on that. And it is this reality of help that ends that, that first verse with, with the sons of Korah saying, because it's true that he's strong and he's a refuge, he's ever-present help, even though the mountains are jumping up all over the place and the, the sea is out of control and the earth feels like it's moving from under our feet, therefore, say it with me, we will not fear. The big question this morning for us is this. Is the God you know sufficient to meet the challenges that come into your life? Challenges come. Anybody here not ever have a, a big challenge in their life? Everybody has them. Is God, is the God you know, what you know to be true, what, what you believe is true about God, is all of that sufficient to meet the challenges that come into your day? Does God's sufficiency in all things lead to your dependence on God? In other words, does sufficiency lead to dependency on God? Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. Sometimes God is the one that brings that challenge into your life. Sometimes it's God that makes the mountains rock and the waters roar and foam and surge. Sometimes it's God that brings that challenge into your life. And that's where we find Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. Moses, for the past 40 years, has been a shepherd in the Midian uh, wilderness. One day he's moving those flocks that belong to his father-in-law Jethro. He's moving them deeper into the wilderness when he notices that there's this curious sight on the side of a mountain. It's a bush and it's on fire, but the bush is not consumed by the fire. He says to the boys, you guys stay here with the flock. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to investigate. I'm a little bit curious about it. I want to see what is happening with that bush. And as he's approaching the bush, you know what happens? God, from inside of that fire... And that bush says to him, and he says, his name is Moses, we say Moses, his name's Moshe in Hebrew. He says, Moshe, Moshe. And Moses says, I, I'm right here. And God says to him, don't come any closer. Do not come any closer. You need to take your shoes off because this is holy ground. 
And Moses takes his shoes off and he knows that this is not something that you experience every day. And so he bows and he buries his face. And God, from inside of that fire, says to him, says, I have seen the misery of, of the people of Israel, my people. And I'm coming down and I'm going to do something about that oppression. I'm going to end their enslavement in Egypt. And oh, by the way, I'm sending you back to bring them out of Egypt. Moses is stunned. Moses had tried and had failed miserably, as you know. And because of that, that failure and the way that it had taken place and all the political and legal ramifications, Moses had put himself in timeout. He had exiled himself to the wilderness, a wilderness where he has grown comfortable with the anonymity of moving flocks from here to there in the middle of nowhere. It's become his new comfort zone. And now God is sending him back and demanding that he go back. And the truth is, you know that when somebody's asking us to do something that we don't want to do, as human beings, we have a shopping list of reasons why we can't obey. Think about something simple like trying to put your kid to bed at night. That kiddo does not want to go to bed. So here comes the list. Jessica and James are putting my granddaughter Blair to bed the other night. And it came time after saying the prayers and reading the book and all of that, it's time for Blair to get in bed. Blair said, I, I really uh, could use another drink of water. I mean, she's two years old and she talks just like that. Could I have a drink of water? And got a drink of water. Now can I go to the bathroom? Which is kind of funny because she's not potty trained yet. Can I go to the bathroom? Can I watch another mouse show? which is Mickey Mouse. Can I watch, after that was over, can I watch another Daniel Tiger? How about a little more Elmo? Is that insane or what? Who needs a little more Elmo? Can we read another book? Can we have another prayer? And finally, the kid is finally coerced into going to bed, but not before they unleash the shopping list of reasons of why they're not going to do that. And they're all couched in a question. And so what we have in the commissioning of Moses to go back to Egypt, not only is it one of the most astonishing conversations you're going to read in the Bible, but it's all couched. There's a shopping list of reasons why Moses can't do what God is asking him to do. It's all in the form of questions. The first one is this. It's up on the screen. Who am I? Who am I? Moses is, is frighteningly frank about himself. He says in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? How many of you like to go to the rodeo? Love going to the rodeo. Went this last February. Lots of cowboys bucked from horses and bulls. My favorite is the extreme bulls. I mean, who needs a 1,000-pound bull when you can ride a 2,000-pound bull? And, and there's kind of a statement that has come out of the rodeos through time and space and history that we're all familiar with. If you get thrown from the horse, what do you got to do? You get back on. Get back into that saddle. Generally true. Generally true. Sometimes that's not a horse you're meant to get back on. Some horses are not meant to be ridden for at least maybe at least seven seconds. Moses 
has not gotten back in the saddle for 40 years. I mean, who am I? Remember what happened 40 years ago? I, I, I killed an Egyptian. I had to run for my life. My people didn't accept what I was trying to do to help them. It's been a long time, God, since I've been in that saddle. Funny thing is, I mean, think about the way you respond to somebody. When they come to you, they've been thrown to the ground, and you want to give them the speech, get back into the saddle. A lot of times we say, what are you talking about? Sure you can do it. Get back into that saddle. You can do it. You have to have a positive attitude that you're going to ride that horse, that your altitude is going to be determined by your attitude. Don't be a defeatist. The funny thing is, is that God does not do that here. God doesn't, you know, pat Moses on the back and say, no, 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 Moses, you, you can do it. You can do it. No, what God does is the, the opposite. God accepts Moses' inadequacy for the task as one of the biggest facts of the situation found in Exodus. God says, you're ready, but you're not sufficient. God and Moses are in agreement here. People are people and nothing more. And that's why God responds in verse 12 with, I will be with you. I will be with you. Well, then Moses says, well, okay, that's great. And you, you have to wonder about this because he's standing in front of a burning bush. But he says, well, who are you? And here's the lengthiest response on the part of God to the doubting questions of Moses. In verses 14 and 15, God is a self-revealing God to human beings, which means that it's more than just words. I mean, Moses is standing in the presence of God. He's standing in front of this burning bush. And the idea of the burning bush, and even this picture up here, doesn't do it justice. I mean, this, the best way to describe what it is that Moses is seeing is a fire inside of a bush. But you know what it is? It's frozen lightning. We're talking about the presence of God. It's God in His glory being revealed to the extent that it scares Moses, but it doesn't kill him. It's the lightning being frozen in a bush. It's fearful and it's fascinating. It's awe-inspiring, but at the same time, Moses is trembling. He's a God who reveals. Number two. He is a God that is compassionate and He's changeless. He will always be a God of love. This power, this frozen lightning that, that, that scares the, uh, Moses to death is, is a power that has a heart. He's a God in verse 17 who keeps promises. He is, in verses 18 and 19, He is a God who in all of His wisdom and in all of His sovereignty, He knows what the future is going to look like. And then in verse 20, not, o not only does He know what it looks like, but He is the God who has the great power in, uh, that is going to be able to make it so. And then in verses 21 and 22, this is a God who sees things as if they are not, uh, uh, that are not as if they are. This is a God who is going to be victorious. Now you would think, there, there are five questions here. You would think, who am I and who are you? That's the show. That that's the heart of the question. Is God sufficient? Well, I know that I'm not God is. 
The lengthiest section, response to a question, is right here. But then we're told something about Moses' heart. He continues the question. Well, what if I'm not believed? In verse 1, what, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? And that's not a bad question, even though it just it doesn't really matter. But it's not a bad question. I mean, Moses is a thinking man. He knows that Israel is going to have a really hard time believing that a disheveled old man coming in from the wilderness, smelling like sheep, is going to have a message from God about their, their freedom. That that is really going to be readily accepted. And so God says, hey, Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a staff. In verse 20, it'll be called the staff of God. But right now, it's just a stick. It's just a stick. And here comes the object lesson for Moses. God will use that simple stick to do something that it cannot do unless a greater power is working in it and through it. It's an object lesson. Moses and you and I are that stick. And of course, no one is going to believe him unless God shows himself in Moses. And so signs and wonders. A sign says, you know, there's a reality down the road that you need to pay attention to and identify. The, the wonder means that, that something astonishing, something that's going to stop people in their tracks is about to happen. The first is that staff in his hand turns into a snake, and then back into a staff. There's a lot to be said about that. You know, the snakes on the crown of Pharaoh. The flinging of the staff down onto the ground is a word in Hebrew that rhymes with the word of flinging the baby boys into the Nile. It becomes a snake. You would think that's enough. Why in the world does God say, now grab it by the tail? Now, what happens if you grab anything by its tail? It turns around and it bites you. Why in the world is God telling Moses, grab that thing by the tail? Because it all has to do with trust. This is as much for Moses. Building trust in the power, the sufficiency of God as anyone else. The hand that's put inside of the cloak, it lepers, puts it back in, it's made wholesome again. Egypt, a notoriously unhealthy place to live during this time. And the skin diseases, leprosy in particular, prevalent and incurable disease is known in that land. Yahweh can inflict or cleanse. And if that doesn't work, God says, then we're going to turn the Nile to blood. Nile, the, the river, is the heart of Egypt the Egyptians sang about it. The Nile, they would sing, the father of life, the mother of all. It was the embodiment or the manifestation of the god Hapi, H-A-P-I, which was a manifestation of a spirit who unceasingly blessed the land. All of these assigned to the people, assigned to Moses, and God is intimating at the same time that he is going to unleash the zoological and physiological forces against Egypt. It should have been done. Moses has another question. What if I'm not good at speaking? What if I'm not a good speaker? 
Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent. Neither in the past, which Acts 7, Stephen says, maybe not so much the case. But I, you know, in the past, or, nor since you've spoken to your servant, I, I'm slow of speech and tongue. You know, we get that, right? I mean, that, that's really kind of a question for a lot of us. Everyone has a question about their ability to speak. What if I don't know what to say? Or the, the killer question is, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I can't convince them? Well, Moses is still hesitant, you know, speaking to sheep and speaking to human beings, not the same thing. But here's the thing about God. This is not so much about Moses. I mean, we get Moses. Here's the thing about God. In, in C.S. Uh, uh, Lewis's book, The Lost Planet, he describes God with this phrase, He is not a twig to be trodden, nor a, ble- a leaf to be blown by the wind. God answers him and says, I've made all of that that you're concerned about. Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Which leads to the final question, can you send somebody else? Can you send somebody else? Hebrew is a little difficult to translate. It's obviously a refusal to do what God is doing, and this is why uh, God's anger is warranted. The Hebrew is literally saying, send by whose hand you will send. In other words, all right, have it your own way. I don't have any other objections. I'm not going to change your mind. Have it your own way. And verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. When something burns, you take something that's, you know, charcoal, for instance, or a log. Innocuous, not dangerous at all, until it burns. And then it gets loud and it gets hot. And you better not get close to it. It becomes dangerous. It becomes consuming. It changes the area around you. And if you're not careful, you get too close to it or you don't respect it. Then it will kill you or harm you. And Moses has crossed a line. And the anger of God begins to burn against Moses. And Moses gets up and he takes off. He's headed to Egypt. How does that relate to us? A lot of our relationship with God, a lot of times, it, Old Testament, New Testament, it's, it's compared to a marriage. And the best of marriages find, you know, this intimacy and this relationship where two people look like one. But in some marriages, you like the other person, but you may not necessarily need them. Into, you know, to become intimate with that wife or that husband may bring you into a situation that you might be uncomfortable with. Like not getting to do what it is you want to do or the thing that you're comfortable with. Lots of Christians like God, but they don't live as if they need Him. And part of that is our fear that, you know, we may get called by God to do something that we really want to do. God's going to call me to some kind of an Egypt, and who's got time for that? Well, let me put your heart at, at rest. 
very few times does God call people to go to Egypt. He does, but not everyone. Not everyone gets called to a foreign land or, or to some kind of a difficult work that would drag other people out of their comfort. That, that doesn't happen very often. It does, but not very often. But there is something that He does call us to do, and that is to live an impossible life. He calls us to live a life that's impossible on our own. I mean, think about it this way. How easy is it to turn the other cheek? I mean, under our own power, how easy is it for us not to get angry in a way that leads to murder, at least in our hearts? How about controlling the tongue? James, the brother of Jesus, is going to say, it's like a fire. Nobody has been able to control that thing, even though it's the smallest muscle in the body. It's an impossible thing. On your own, independent of God, to control the tongue. How about forgiving someone as you have been forgiven? Or forgive anything as you have been forgiven? Or how about this, to give thanks at all times... For this is the will of God in Christ. Or to get rid of the idols of your heart. All of these things that you have been called to live as a disciple of Jesus are impossible unless you recognize that God's sufficiency and your dependency on His power enables you to do it. God speaks through His Word to you. God's Spirit is in you. But God has also sent the ultimate Moses to end your enslavement. The Messiah heeded the call in heaven. And it is Jesus who would go in God's power, performing miraculous signs and calling people to follow Him to the ultimate promised land. He left His home not to go to a place where the men who are seeking your life are now dead, but to a place where men would kill him. But unlike Moses, who died on the mount, unable to lead the people into the promised land, Jesus died on the mount in order to lead the people into the promised land. God is sufficient in all things. To whatever it is He calls you to do, most basic of all, to live a life that looks like the Messiah. To, to live a life that, that by the, own, the, the manifestation of Christ in you makes the gospel message believable. Are you dependent on Him to live that kind of life? We're going to sing a song of praise. Brandon is going to lead us in. We're going to sing a song of praise for all of the great things that God not only teaches but reveals to us and underscores in all of life for us to know that this is true, that He is there, He is with us, that at every moment He is bringing us closer and closer and closer to Him and using our lives as well to bring others into His life. 
If there are some ways that we can minister to you this morning, we're going to have shepherds down here at the front. We're going to ask everyone to stand and sing as we invite those to come down to the front. Let's stand and praise God together.